Uh, look, we just got past Thanksgiving, and Thanksgiving's that season where uh, you're supposed to have a really great time with a whole bunch of relatives, all right? Uh, anybody else got a crazy aunt or an uncle? Uh, look, if they're here today, don't raise your hand, okay? That's not okay. But I think all of us got a crazy Uncle Steve or a crazy Uncle Josh or whatever it is. We've all got some crazy, and, and for some of you, even thinking about going to your relative's house uh, for Thanksgiving, like it evokes some wild memories. Some of you are like, man, it's great times. It's great times, you know. When I get there, I just feel so safe and comfortable. And for others, like we want to kind of throw up a little bit on the inside when we go visit our relatives, right? I mean, there's some memories of things that have been done, maybe expectations that have not been met uh, when it comes to relatives and family. Family can be really, really challenging because we've got those kind of tensions. I, I asked someone uh, in my family, actually, uh, over the Thanksgiving break here uh, to, to kind of relive some of their old Thanksgiving memories. What was it like for you growing up? You know, that kind of stuff. And uh, one person said that all they could remember was when their cousins came over, somebody would get offended, and then all three of his, like, you know, uh, cousin girls would just start crying and blaming somebody. And it's just like it was a tear fest, every single family gathering. I don't know if that's your experience or not, but family can be challenging. It can be challenging. So here's what I want to do. We're right in the middle of the holiday season now. Thanksgiving, in essence, like kicked it off. And now, between now and Christmas, we're right in that holiday season. You're probably going to be forced to interact with some people that you may not like. You know, of course, you're a Christian. You're like, you know, I got to love them, but you may not like. Uh, so what we want to do is we want to equip you today and moving forward, what do we do? With that. Maybe you're watching online and you're not maybe comfortable even coming into a church building because you're, you're not sure about how they would receive you, uh, like a lot of awkward family settings. Man, we want to give you tools to be able to make it through the holidays and not just make it through, but actually thrive and keep that soul intact. So the big question we're going to ask today really is what do you do with the mess from your past? So here's the gift that we're going to open today. We're going to open the gift of grace. The gift of grace. Uh, and as we get in this, you've got those message notes. Man, I encourage you to pull those out. You've got some pens with you. If you don't have one of those, just throw your hand up. We'll find someone in the back who can get you one of those. Uh, but that's going to be your guide today. Uh, if you're watching online, I encourage you to come sometime. We're going to have some slides up on the screen. But, but experience this with us, and we're going to have a really good time. Uh, but the first thing I want you guys to fill out is a definition of grace, okay? Because we've got to define this. How do you define grace? And so we're going to define it this way. Grace is defined as an undeserved gift. It's an undeserved gift. It's not something that you earned, not something that you merited, not something that you did that somehow got it uh, in your hands. It was a gift given simply because the other person wanted to give it to you. Um, and here's the crazy thing about grace. When we learn to accept it and when we learn to give it, it has a transforming power to it. Uh, that's what we're going to unpack today. So uh, if you have your Bibles, um, you can open up to Matthew chapter 1. It also will be in the notes with you, and we're going to have them on the screen as well. But we're going to be hanging out in Matthew chapter 1, and what we're going to do is we're going to look at Jesus' family. Maybe some of you are like, wait, Jesus had a family? Yeah, he did. Uh, and he had a long line of family that was not exactly clean, okay? 
Uh, that's what we're going to dive into today. Uh, we're going to look at a passage that maybe a lot of us, if we've read it before, quickly skimmed through it. Maybe someone encouraged you, uh, and maybe you're just seeking, you're not sure about this whole thing, kind of testing out this whole Christianity thing. Someone said, hey, you should go check out the Gospels. And you're like, what's the Gospels? Is that music? You're like, no, it's actually four books of the Bible that are basically biographies of Jesus. Someone pointed you to one of them, and it started off this way, okay? It started off this way, and you're thinking, this makes no sense to me. Matthew chapter 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And you're thinking, wait a minute, I'm going to dive into a Jesus story here. We're beginning with a genealogy. Anybody else just like tempted to skip right past this stuff? All right. Like anybody else get bored with this? All right. So this is how it begins. Uh, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Now, at this point, like, uh, again, some of us would be like, all right, it's a bit of a yawn, okay? I'm getting a little bored already, and the message hasn't even started yet, all right? So uh, that's where we are when we read genealogies. But let me tell you this. This genealogy list is anything but boring. When you look at the names and the people that are included in this list— they should not be included there for a lot of reasons. So back in the first century, just quick historical reference here, the, the genealogy was essentially someone's resume. What your family line was like, who was in your family line, had a lot to say about who you were. And you would reference the people in your family line that would actually help contribute to a positive reputation. You'd want people in your family line that were uh, full of good credentials. You know, they, they were high in the credibility list. Uh, you'd, you'd mention these people because they would make you look good. Your identity had everything to do with uh, who's you were a part of, what family you were a part of. Uh, and uh, this, this is crazy when we look at Jesus' family and what was mentioned in all of this. Uh, but before we even get into that genealogy list and how crazy that is, what I want you to understand, you can write this in your notes, this is, this is point number one uh, underneath the definition of grace here, is that grace is found in the real, not the mythical. Grace is found in the real, not the mythical. When God came into this world, he wrote himself into very real family, very real stories, very real. I mean, he had brothers and sisters that probably drove him crazy, just like your brothers and sisters drive you crazy. Aunts and uncles, crazy family members. He had all of that. Grace is found in the real. It's very real. And this is one of the things we need to understand from the very beginning, is that when God has a plan for your life, and he said that he came into this world to do something for us that we couldn't do on our own, he didn't come in kind of a, a pie in the sky kind of a thing or an ideal or the hypothetical or just a good feeling. It's very real. Jesus grounded himself in history. He came, the Son of God, 2,000 years ago. It's a historical fact. And when he came real, he came in a very real setting, in a very real family with a lot of very real mess. And boy, guys, when you think about becoming a person that's full of grace, it's, it's, it's nice to say that I'd like to be full of grace. It's nice to say that I'd love to embrace grace as a lifestyle, as an identity, but grace is found in the real. And it doesn't get tested until you sit across the table from crazy Uncle Steve. Okay? Grace is very real, and we, we've got to be able to, to work through very real scenarios. Now, now, there is a line of thought that says that Jesus wasn't actually real. 
that he is mythical, that he's been written into history by people who had an agenda, uh, that the Christ figure actually isn't a real thing. And I just want to dismiss that for you right away. Maybe some of you online, you, you don't know about this whole Christianity thing, uh, but uh, let me just tell you that beyond even the gospel accounts that we have, that some people don't trust, and we've got messages on that, that uh, for further exploration if you want, there's outside evidence that actually proves that Jesus was around in the first century. There was a Jewish philosopher uh, and historian by the name of Josephus who wrote back in the very first century a whole account that I'm not even going to articulate to you now, uh, but that talks about Jesus, uh, that he was a wise man, uh, if, and he actually did extraordinary deeds and as a teacher. He was considered a Messiah. He was murdered under Pontius Pilate. Like, he wrote all of this, and this is beyond the biblical accounts here. A Roman historian named Tacitus back in AD 64 who was working for Nero, who did not like the Christians, was not for the Christians, also verified Jesus' identity. So we have to understand that beginning with Jesus here, God giving us an undeserved gift of grace, that grace is found in the real. Jesus is very historical. And the work that he came to do is not abstract, it's concrete. And it's face-to-face with very real very real people. Now, here's the good news about this, okay? Jesus doesn't just offer us a set of ideals to live by. He offers us good news. He doesn't just offer us advice as if, like, this is the ladder that you can now climb to become a better religious person. No, he offers us good news, meaning that something has been done 2,000 years ago that was finished, concrete, not abstract, not something that you can kind of become a better person. He actually did something for you that changes all of history from that moment on. And it was rooted in a family tree that had a dramatic impact on everyone in this list and everyone moving forward right up into our generation. Jesus is real. And when we embrace grace, we've also got to think about it in the concrete, face-to-face with very difficult people. Maybe some of you, you're thinking about your boss. He's a hard person to work for. Your coworkers, very difficult sometimes to get along with. Maybe your own family, like whatever it is, grace is found in the real, not the abstract, not the mythical. All right. Now, how real did it get? Okay, so you're like, Scott, you mentioned some of this family tree is a little on the crazy side. How crazy does it get? You ready for this? So he begins by talking about people in this genealogy. This is Matthew's gospel here, his account, his biography of Jesus. He mentions people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who were they? They were the patriarchs of the Jewish faith. When we think about a resume for a Jew, these are the names that we'd expect to be in this list. They were great people. Uh, that had a lot of credibility, street cred, uh, with the first century audience, okay? Now, they were pretty messed up. If you look back in their line, uh, they were not clean people. But these are the people that you kind of expect to be in it. And then you get to verse 3. Check this out. Verse 3. Judah was one of the sons of Jacob. Judah, the father of Perez. And Zerah, whose mother was who? Tamar. Anybody know who Tamar was? Now, first of all, this is a woman, That's mentioned in the genealogy list. You didn't do that in the first century. Because the first century didn't exactly think positively of women, like we do in the 21st century. But you didn't include women. And there's actually going to be five ladies that are mentioned in this genealogy list. But it's like Matthew takes a massive veer off course to include these people in the list. 
Most people wouldn't even include these people uh, in the list because they were women, uh, but also because of their scandalous background. In fact, uh, we have records of Herod the Great back in the first century blotting out certain people in his genealogy list uh, because they made him look bad. Matthew does the exact opposite. When pointing to their leader, the Messiah, the one that he's calling everyone to follow, he intentionally points people to a scandalous family tree. Because he wants them to understand something about grace, okay? So what happened? Who's Tamar? This is the first woman in the list. Who is Tamar? Tamar, I'm not making this up, okay? The Bible's not for wimps, all right? Or, or for kind of like sissy men. It, it gets grimy and gritty when you read the Bible, okay? Tamar uh, was a woman uh, who is the, uh, the daughter-in-law of Judah and she actually at one point dressed up like a prostitute and uh, presented herself on the side of the road to trick him into going to a prostitute and getting her pregnant. Some parents are like, thanks a lot, Pastor Scott. I got a lot of explaining to do when I get home, okay? Uh, you're very welcome for that. Uh, kids, just close your ears for that second, all right? Anyway, Tamar, it is scandalous. She pretended to be a prostitute in order to get her father-in-law to get her pregnant. That's what happens. Why? Would you include a woman like that on the genealogy list? All right, it gets crazier. Ready? She's not alone. Uh, in verse 5, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother, whose mother was Rahab. Anyone know who Rahab was? Tamar pretended to be a prostitute. Rahab was a prostitute. <laughs> so in, in Jesus' family tree, if you weren't a prostitute, you were pretending to be one. Um, that's the kind of people that Jesus comes from. That's Rahab. But God ends up using Rahab. Now, it, it goes on. Uh, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Who is Ruth? Well, Ruth shouldn't be in this list because she wasn't a legitimate Jew. I mean, this is a, a family line that you'd expect would beef up Jesus' Jewish resume. Ruth was a Moabitess. She was not a Jew, and so you wouldn't include her. Uh, in fact, there's a moment in, in the book, and it's a beautiful book uh, called Ruth, and Ruth is a really amazing character, but she does something in the book that scholars are tr still trying to figure out what happened, and it's a bit of a scandalous moment. I'll leave you to read that on your own. Um, but it goes on, Obed the father of Jesse in verse 5 and 6, and Jesse the father of King David. We think, oh great, King David, that's awesome, great in the family tree. But beyond that, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been what? Uriah's wife. He doesn't even mention her by name. Who's Uriah's wife? Bathsheba. And if you know the story there, it's very intentional that he doesn't mention her name because he's pointing us to what happened in that story. King David is supposed to be out with the army fighting in the fields uh, to protect the honor of Jerusalem and, and be out with his mighty men. And he decides instead to wimp out and hang out up on his castle roof doing nothing. And when you give dudes nothing to do and they're really bored and their eyes are start wandering, bad things happen, okay? I think one of the most dangerous things in America is a bored male adult. We got to get you guys something to do, okay? Anyway, David is up on the, the house and he's looking out and he's watching uh, all sorts of things happen and his eyes start going whoop to this one scene because there's a beautiful woman bathing on the roof. Women, I don't recommend that, okay? Don't do that. Anyway, uh, David is watching this and he says, I've got to have. And so he has, he takes her, he impregnates her. Uh, and then when he tries to cover it up after he finds out that she's pregnant, he basically has her husband killed out on the battlefield after lying to him. This is in Jesus' family tree. You guys think you come from some messy family stuff? Jesus got you beat, okay? All right. Now, the last one I'm going to point you to real quick. 
Verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, we're going to kind of skip around here a little bit because I wanted to show you these five women especially because, again, Matthew veers way off course to include them into this tree very intentionally. Verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, who's called the Messiah. Now, in this moment, like, we think, oh, Mary. Well, at least we can breathe with Mary, right? You know, all these other ladies are kind of scandalous, but we can breathe with her because we see the nativity scenes and she's glowing, you know, and you got the glowing Joseph next to her and all the animals are glowing and the wise men are glowing and the shepherds, like it's just a glowing, beautiful scene, right? If anybody's ever been to a birth before, it's not glowing, okay? It's anything but glowing. And when you think about that in a stable with a whole bunch of animals around, it's not a glowing scene. We're talking about a single mom in the first century who gave birth outside. Like if you're a husband in that moment, like I'm, I'm just, I'm thinking about Joseph in that moment. Like you're just praying, God, why, 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 why? You know, like that's a bad moment. All of this is included in Jesus' tree here. And here's the second thing I want you guys to write down. As we embrace grace, and as we think about this gift that God wants to give us with grace today, we've got to be honest about the good and the bad in your family. Be honest. Because grace is grounded in the real, very concrete, with people that are messy, and we've got to be really honest. If we're going to grow in grace, we're going to embrace grace and a lifestyle of grace, we've got to be honest, brutally honest, about where we come from, about the baggage that has been passed down to us from generation to generation. Be honest about it, because some of the stuff that you walked into this room with got handed down to you from mom and dad, and from their mom and dad, and from their mom and dad. And if we're not careful, we're going to repeat patterns of sin in our life because it's just what we do. It's what we learned to do. We inherit this stuff. This is, this is from Scripture. In Romans, it says, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. What it's talking about is that we've inherited brokenness. We've inherited patterns that have just been passed down from generation to generation. If we're not careful, if we're not honest, if we have not identified it, we're going to repeat it. We're going to repeat it. Uh, we've got resources of this in the, the hallway, and I actually really encourage some of you to just go ahead and pick one of those books up. That's a gift from us to you. Uh, Peter Cesare wrote a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And in the book, he talks about a whole bunch of different things to help us kind of get honest about ourselves and where we come from. But he's got a particular chapter on our family tree and identifying some of those patterns of brokenness that we come from. And he, he has what he calls the Ten Commandments of Patterns of Brokenness uh, and all sorts of different categories, ten, ten different categories of things that we get handed down to us that if we're not careful, we, we just repeat. I'm going to just name a couple from, for you here. Behavioral patterns here. Uh, I'll just ask you a question. How did your family handle conflict growing up? Did you have the passive aggression in your background where it's just like, ah, oh, we don't talk about that? You know, you're just going to like sweep that under the rug. Or were you kind of more the, all right, let's go. You know, you want to go there? And, you know, they, you, your family's the one that throws the punch first. Like, do you avoid conflicts at all costs? Or are you like, don't get people mad at you? You know, whatever it is, don't, don't, don't ever let people get mad at you. Or were you kind of that loud, angry, constant fighting as the norm in your family? Be honest about it. Where does that come from? I mean, just think about some of your family gatherings. Where, where is that? Grief and loss. Is sadness handed down to you? Is sadness viewed as a sign of weakness? 
Not allowed to be sad. You're not allowed. Not allowed to be depressed. That's, that's an off-limit term. If you're depressed, hide it. Don't show anybody. That's not something that we talk about. Get, get over your losses quickly, you know? Are you honest about where you come from in your family tree? Even just your concept of family. Did your family talk about it as like you owe your parents for all that they've done for you? Like you, you better shape up. Just look at all that I've done for you. Don't speak of your family's dirty laundry in public. Duty to family and culture comes before everything. I mean, what, what did you inherit from your family? Jesus, when he came into this world, was brutally honest. And Matthew wrote down the stuff that God inspired him to write down. He included dirt and baggage and nasty things from the past because God had to be honest about the brokenness in this world before he could extend grace. And if we're going to extend grace to people around us, We've got to be brutally honest about where we come from. Even feelings and emotions. Your feelings and your emotions. Were you not allowed to have certain feelings? Were feelings not important to you? Reacting with your feelings without thinking. Was that okay? I mean, did mom and dad, did grandma and grandpa, did they just react without thinking first? Where do you come from? Now, if you're anything like me, some of the stuff that maybe you hate the most in other family members, I'm just going to say it. Probably stuff that you struggle with too. If you noticed it, some of the maybe family members that you struggle with the most are probably more like you <laughs> than you're willing to own. I've seen it over and over. Be honest. Man, be honest. Be honest about your family tree. But I want you in the honesty to know this too. That when Jesus includes all these people in this family tree, what he wants them to know more than anything is that you're not defined by your past. That when grace steps into the picture, you don't have to be that constant bickering. You don't have to be someone who is owned by their emotions. You don't have to be someone who is constantly thinking of others in a negative light. You don't have to be that, that thing that was passed down to you from generation to generation. You don't have to be that. You don't have to be defined by that. Because when Jesus came into the picture, he reset the game. And when you trust in Christ... You can be a new creation. But in order to get there, we've got to be honest. We've got to be honest. We've got to be honest. Okay, so once you're honest about all of this, how do you deal with it? That's one of the big questions here, okay? Now, here's one of the things that we have to understand in here too. We don't have time to unpack all of these people in this genealogy list, but I encourage you, go ahead and do some historical research in Scripture to find out who these people were and, and what was great and what was kind of ugly about it. Um, but... They're not in this list to beef up Jesus' resume. This is the son of God. I don't think he needs a whole lot of more beefing to his resume. They're in it not because they're great, but because they need grace. They're in it not because they are great, but because they need grace. And here's the third thing I want you to write down. We have to own the fact that we all need grace. We have to own the fact that every one of us Need grace. If you're going to grow in grace, you've got to own that you need grace too. Every one of us. It is not because you've earned anything that you've been given a great gift from God. It's because he came in and did for you what you did not deserve. And you can go ahead and write that down again. It is an undeserved gift. Write it down again because we've got to repeat that again and again and again and again in our, our minds. Grace is defined as, as an undeserved gift. In Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, the Apostle Paul put it this way. It says, it is for by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the what? 
The gift of God. The gift of God, not by works, not by merits, not by anything you earned, so that no one can boast. The reality is we had a massive debt that we owed God. A massive debt. And we could not pay it back because the wages of our sin and our rebellion was death. We could not pay it. But God gave us what we did not deserve. He gave us what we did not deserve. He gave us grace by dying in our place. Now, here's what happens, ready? For a lot of us, when we approach family and some of the mess from our past, we don't approach it with an undeserved gift mindset. We approach family members more of a deserving mindset, right? <laughs> when we get to that family table, we're like, man, I'm not talking to that person. They drive me crazy, you know? I'm not going to talk to them. And in our mind, what we've done is we've substituted the undeserving gift that we've been given with a deserving gift because I'm better than they are. I'm not going to talk to them. They, they drive me crazy. And what we did, we've, we've replaced this undeserved with this merit mindset of like, no, 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 I'm actually better. I've worked my life in a better way than they have. Uh, I deserve this. And every single time we, we enter a conversation or a relationship or a mess or a place that reminds us of bad memories, like every time we, we enter it with a deserving mindset, we set ourselves up and others for disaster. All right, so Thanksgiving meal. Supposed to be one of the best dinners in the entire year, right? Uh, when you enter it with a deserving mindset, things kind of go haywire, all right? So uh, I was looking forward to the Thanksgiving meal so much this year, so much. I am a foodie, if anybody understands me and knows me. I'm a big-time foodie, love food. I'll eat food all day. I'll beat you at a food eating contest, okay? Food is just awesome. And so when it comes to Thanksgiving dinner, like, I look forward to it every year. It's become, like, probably my favorite holiday because food is at the center of it, okay? And there's so much preparation that goes into the feast of Thanksgiving. And so we're looking at it. You know, and I, I'm working hard. Uh, I've been working hard on my green bean casserole. Like, you know, Charity and I put some, some work into a chocolate pie. She's like, no, you didn't. I did that. Just kidding. Um, so anyway, a lot of preparations going into this meal. And at this point, we're like, man, all this work that's going into it, I deserve this, right? It's going to be awesome. Just wait for that moment. It's going to be fantastic. And like the smells that are coming from the kitchen, they're just like getting all the juices going. You're just like, I can't wait for the Thanksgiving meal. Except we got nine kids in the house. And if you're a parent, and you know that there are nine kids six years old and younger in the house, mealtime isn't exactly mealtime. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, like, the, the bell rings, and we get to the dinner table, and I'm like, yes, Thanksgiving dinner! And then it's like, hey, Dad, can you help me out with this? Yeah, absolutely. You know, just go ahead and fix that. And then I sit down about to put that. No, no, no. I need this, Dad. Okay. All right. So I like put some more food on there. I'm like, okay, great. You know, about to get some more food. Hey, my milk just spilled all over my food. Oh, no. So I go ahead and clean that all up. And then I get sit down. And like in the middle of all the chaos, like I'm just like rifling through all this food. And I'm like waiting for the next thing to go haywire. So I'm like pounding all this food and eating it really fast instead of enjoying it. And I'm telling you, I ate it so fast that uh, I didn't even notice what was happening inside my body. And so much food had come on the inside of me uh, that when it finally registered how much food is inside, guess what happened? That food coma hit hard, Okay hard. I'm telling you, if anyone was looking at me, like I was starting to go a little dizzy uh, and like no good for anybody else that was in that house the rest of the day. Like laying around on the couch. Like, oh, you know, like I, like I wanted so badly to enjoy Thanksgiving. But when I came into it with a deserving mindset, I was getting cranky with my kids. 
and I was losing myself. When you enter family situations with a deserving mindset, I deserve this, I'm not going to talk to this person, I'm not going to interact with them, they, they don't deserve it because they've hurt me, they've wounded me, I'm not going to listen to them, engage them in that conversation, I'm not even going to go to their house this year because they've drew, they, they're not going to go there. What you've done is you've closed yourself off from receiving the grace of God, and you're closing yourself off from experiencing the joy of giving grace. Because, man, when you sit down at that Thanksgiving table and you've embraced the fact that I don't deserve a single moment of this, you're now free to love the people around you. But we've got to own it. Own that you need grace. Own that you need grace. And when you've owned that you need grace, you are free to give the gift of grace to other people who equally don't deserve it. Did God love us because we earned it? No, you bet not. In fact, in Romans 5, 8, it says, God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Yeah, family gatherings get crazy. But when you approach it with a grace mindset, I don't deserve any of this. You're free to love people around you. Own it. Own the fact that you need grace. So what happens when we operate with more of a merit mindset, more of I deserve this? Like it, it gets crazy, it gets, it gets nasty. Jesus actually, it reminded me of the story of, of, uh, of what Jesus told us because grace and forgiveness are actually really closely connected. And some of us in this room, we, we need to understand that we need to start extending more forgiveness for the people who've wounded us in our past. Jesus kind of put it this way because Peter came up to him at one point and, and started asking, Jesus, I just want to understand how far this whole grace thing goes. Uh, how, how many times are we supposed to forgive somebody? You know, up to seven times. And what he was asking in that question is like, seven's a completion number. Uh, he, he's asking, just give me a number. Just, just give me like a, a final number of how many times I'm supposed to forgive somebody because once I'm past that number, we're good, right? And Jesus says, uh, it's not seven times, it's 77 times. And what he mentioned, what he, what, he, what he articulated in that moment is, I don't want you to have a limit. I want you to be unlimited in your grace giving to other people. And he went on and told them a story. He told them a story about a, a guy who had a ton of property and a ton of wealth, and he entrusted it to a manager, a servant underneath him to, to kind of manage that wealth and that money. Well, things went crazy and haywire and, and really bad fast for this manager. He was a crazy bad manager with all of it and ended up in an amazing amount of debt. So much debt that in our day, it probably amounts to trillions and trillions and trillions of debt. Something that he could not pay, astronomical debt. He comes up to the manager and he says, please forgive me. I can't pay this back. I, I, I don't know what to do. And miraculously... The original owner says, okay, you're off the hook. I'm canceling the entire debt. Now, if the story ended there, we'd just be like, wow, that was unbelievable. But it doesn't end there. The guy who'd been forgiven all that debt actually had a servant underneath him uh, who owed him a couple hundred bucks. And he went to that servant, and the servant said, please, just, just help me out. Just give me a little bit more time. I, I just need some help. And instead of forgiving him in that moment, what did he do? He took the guy by the neck, had a chokehold on him, and said, you pay me back everything. And he had him thrown in prison until he could pay back. 
Now, the original manager, the original owner found out about all of this, and he called that guy back in and said, how could you? This is what he says. Ready? In, uh, in Matthew 18, verse 32, it says, the master called the servant in. This is in your notes. Master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in his anger, the master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. What's the point here? Jesus says, we've been forgiven an astronomical debt between us and the God of the universe. When we fail to extend that same grace to people around us, it's like we've got a chokehold on them for owing us just a couple hundred bucks. And the crazy thing is, when we do not extend grace to other people, what happens? Man, we find ourselves in a prison. We find ourselves in a prison. A prison of bitterness, a prison of anger, a prison of, I'm not going to give you that because you don't deserve that. It is a prison. And he says it's a place of torture. And you're not going to get out until you actually learn how to extend grace and forgiveness in other people's lives. And so here's the next thing that we've got to learn how to do. You can write this in your notes. We need to learn to give and accept grace daily. We've got to give and accept grace daily. Until you've learned to accept it, you're never going to get to the place where you can give it. Uh, And until you give it, you're never going to fully embrace the grace of God either. We've got to do this. And unless we do it, we're going to be hit with a nagging sense of bitterness and anger on the inside of us. And I'm telling you, that's a prison you don't want to be in. That's a prison you don't want to be in. This is truth. Can you fix anybody in this world? The problems they got and the problems they carry in with them in every conversation, can you fix anybody? No. You and I can't fix a single soul, although we'd probably like to, right? If I said, hey, write down the name of somebody that you'd like to fix right now, you'd be like, you got it, Pastor Scott. Mm -hmm." You know, like, and you'd put their name down and you'd highlight it and circle it and underline it and be like, yes, boom. Like, that's the person I'd love to fix right now. Can't fix them. But you can accept the grace of God and you can extend grace to them. And only when we learn to do that on a daily basis of embracing that process are we actually going to grow in freedom for us. Did you notice this? How long it took for Jesus to enter into this, in this genealogy? What does it say? I love this. Verse 17. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the exile of Babylon, and 14 generations from the exile to the Messiah. That's a long time. That's a long time. And for some of us in this room, it's going to be a process of every single day of your life, learning to own the brokenness of your past, learning to submit it to God, learning to accept his grace in our life so that we can learn to extend that grace to other people. And only when you submit to that process are you going to experience freedom. You're going to experience freedom. Here's the last thing I want us to kind of dive through in this moment. You've got a choice, you and me. We have a choice in this room of what kind of a life we're going to live. A life to either sit inside that prison cell or of a life of freedom walking outside of it. We have that choice. But we only have one resource that's going to be able to fully get us to that place of real freedom. Here's the the wonderful thing that I love at the very end. Why did Matthew mention 14 generations, 14 generations, and 14 generations? 
The number seven, like we said before, is a really significant number in the Bible. Incredibly significant. It was a, it was a number of completion, of fulfilling, of satisfaction. And in this moment, what he does is he mentions three different sets, three different pairs of seven. Fourteen, you know, seven plus seven. We've got some math majors in the room today. Seven plus seven is fourteen. Okay, so there's two sets, uh, three sets of fourteen, which means six different sevens, and then Jesus. This is amazing. This is, this is part of the literary genius of some of the gospel writers. What he's saying in this moment is that Jesus is the seventh seven. Jesus is the seventh seven. What does he mean by that? Jesus, it, uh, God, it took God seven days to make the world. What did he do on the seventh day? He rested. He didn't work. He rested. And what Matthew is saying in this moment is that in those moments where family gets crazy, where life gets crazy, you don't want to extend grace to anyone else. You just don't have the resources on the inside. You don't have the capacity to extend grace to someone else. What he's saying is you need to embrace Jesus because he is your rest. And he alone is the rest that you and I need to really fully embrace grace and extend grace to other people. Hebrews put it this way in in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9 and 10. It says, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works. The restless spirit that you get when you start driving to that relative's house and you understand some of those memories that kick all that, that bad feelings on the inside of you or maybe even thinking about that person who has betrayed you or disowned you or said those nasty things or c- continues to bring up those political conversations at the dinner table that drive you crazy. Don't do that at Thanksgiving. Please don't do that. Um, all that stuff, what he's saying is that Jesus is the only basis For you to finally have rest on the inside of you, no matter how chaotic it is on the outside. Jesus said, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That when we choose to trust Christ and trust Jesus with everything inside of us, you can be at peace no matter what is happening on the outside. And so grace, this is our last thing I want you to write down. Grace invites us to trade A restless soul for a soul at rest. And when you've embraced a soul at rest, you can embrace grace and extend grace no matter what life looks like. Some of you come from some mess, guys. I've had to take a look at my family tree and some of the things that I've been handed down from my grandparents and my my grandparents and the amazing thing is that when Jesus entered my family line with my parents when they surrendered to Christ in their mid-30s, everything changed for them. And by God's grace, I've actually been able to inherit some new patterns of living. And I, I, w- I want you to know that some of the stuff that you've been handed down from generation to generation, it doesn't have to continue. It can stop today by trusting in Christ. Christ. And putting all of your hope in him. Learning how to daily accept and receive. And then also extend grace to other people. That is the only place you're going to find freedom. I was reminded of my wife this week. uh, Who came from some pretty ugly stuff in her past. A dad who cheated on uh, his wife 13 times. Moved to all sorts of different states. Gone through a couple of ugly divorces. Mom remarried to an abusive man. 
And every single time my wife goes back to that area in Vermont, she's reminded of some memories that make her just want to run in the opposite direction. I don't want to go back. I don't want to experience all that stuff. I'd love to just leave all those memories and all those stories that wounded me in a deep way. I'd love to just leave them in the past, tie them tight, lock them in a chest, and never, ever experience that again. But I tell you what, I'm so proud of her that every single time we get to a holiday and we make that drive up to Vermont, she receives the grace of God and gets so freed on the inside that she is willing and available and full to be able to extend that grace to others around her. You know what's happened? She's become one of the most beautiful people I've ever met. That can happen for you, and it can happen for me. But not until we learn how to accept and give the gift of grace. That's the invitation today, guys. Accepting. Jesus is offering us a gift. Open it and give it away.